1: Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's been 50 years since the summit series between Canada and the Soviet Union took place. A series that meant a lot on the ice in terms of its hockey implications, but also found itself being a pretty significant geopolitical event as well. For his thoughts on this, let's bring in Liam McGuire. Liam is an NHL historian and an author of four books on the subject and joins us from my old hometown of Ottawa, Ontario. Mr. McGuire, thank you for making time for us today. We appreciate it.
0: Dave, pleasure to be with you.
1: So Liam, I'm curious. I set up the juxtaposition there in the, in, in the intro. What do you think? Do you think the legacy of this series has more to do with geopolitics or more to do with its influence on the game of hockey?
0: Wow. Uh, that's a really tough question because... I think it was significantly important on both those fronts. I mean, the game of hockey changed dramatically, not the least of which is every single European player or former East Bloc player or from a former East Bloc country that's cashing a paycheck in North America anywhere today at any level owes their very existence and ability to earn that living thanks to the Summit Series and how it played out, let alone what what transpired transpired in the game in terms of training and, and all of the other intricacies that go into being a good hockey team that, that they incorporated from us and we incorporated from them. That's on the ice, off the ice. The way you set that up, Dave, uh, boy, I'll tell you, it was, it was an absolute firecracker of a month that was centered around a sport, and yet the implications in terms of politics were so much more than just a hockey series. So I don't know that there's one that's more impactful than the other. I think they both are just just massively, massively linked together and forever will be. And for that reason, it's why it's the most significant sporting moment in Canadian and hockey history.
1: That's uh, me being a very ungracious host, forcing you into a binary like that on the first question, but you stick-handled it very, very well as you were coming down the wing. Let's talk about the hockey here, because as you say, this was a huge moment for European and Eastern Bloc players, and now we're talking about an NHL that is just loaded with talent from all over the world. What did Team Canada know about the Soviet style of hockey going into the series?
0: We we actually had more knowledge available to us than uh, unfortunately than they than they ended up using to any degree of of, uh, of preparation. Harry Sindon, who came out of retirement essentially to coach the team, played against the Soviets numerous times. He was with the Whitby Dunlops when they won the world championship. I mean, he tried to tell the guys there was uh, several other players on the team. Rod Sealing. Uh, Brian Glennie on the roster. He didn't play during the eight games, but on the roster, they had won medals for Canada in previous Olympics, albeit bronze. But they they had experience playing against the Soviets and tried to tell their brethren that this these guys are good. They can play the game, and nobody was listening. Nobody cared. Uh, every every everything that was said by the the Toronto Maple Leaf scouts who went over and scouted Tretjack and saw the poor equipment and saw the bizarre training and circling on the ice and anything they caught in any any ice time that they saw prior to the series, nobody gave it an ounce of respect. And as a result, on that Saturday night, September 2nd, 1972, the hockey world was shook to its core and uh, none more so than here in Canada. So it uh, it will stand the test of time from game one and right through the rest of the month. And Keep in mind when I say European, what a lot of people over time seem to have forgotten because we're now several generations beyond those who actually have active memories of watching it. We played two games right now, 50 years ago at this time, we were in Sweden. We were practicing every day on the big ice to get used to it. And we, in just a few days time, 50 years ago, would play our first of two games against the Swedish national team. Then after we won game eight, on that Thursday, September 28th, we flew to what was then Czechoslovakia and played their national team who actually were the defending world champions at mm. that time. Mm. So we played, you know, in four countries, three teams in a month. And that's why it's not just the fact that we came back and, and did what we did under on, largely on Paul Henderson's back, but it was also what happened in Sweden and what happened in, in, in Czechoslovakia. Because next thing you know, those players are flooding over to North America. Mm-hmm. They've been seen for the first time. Gloria Solomon, Inga Hammerstrom, Tommy Burdenham, Lars Eric Schoberg, uh, yeah, Peter Starsny all of these guys. Vladiklav who just went in the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. So it was uh, it was a critically important month for a lot of reasons. And it fashioned us the, the greatest sporting moment in Canadian history, but it has so much, so much more widespread, widespread impactful associations.
1: I, I think you just laid it out in that answer, but in terms of the growth of the sport, where do you think we'd be right now without something like the summit series things, even things like the world juniors or the Canada cup or the Olymp or, or pro athletes, NHLers going to the Olympics. Where do you think yeah. we'd be without a series like 72?
0: <clears throat> well, again, another really great question. Let's say, let's say for whatever reason it, it, it doesn't happen and the WHA definitely don't do theirs in 74 it absolutely would not have and the world juniors actually started in 1974 and they started as an exhibition tournament it became a fully sanctioned international ice hockey federation event in 1977. we Ca- canada didn't send a national team until 1982 we were sending club teams that have won the memorial cup the year before and then the next year lose half their roster and send over a team we we're getting killed then we sent our first national team in 82 and we won gold Does any of that start without the Summit Series? Probably, but not in the time period that it did, for sure, and maybe not even in the fashion that it did, to be perfectly honest. The Summit Series, and as I said, those games against Sweden and then Czechoslovakia, it whetted our appetite. It 100% led to the Canada Cup starting in 1976, and that time Bobby Orr played and Bobby Hall played. And that is the greatest team ever assembled at one time, that Canadian team from the Canada Cup in 1976. There were 18 Hall of Famers on wow. that roster. Wow. But 72 gave us the greatest, most dramatic, most triumphant, and the beginning, really, of two things. Number one, that was the first time ever in this country that anything was called Team Canada. First time ever. And now, 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 now you can send over all walks of life and anything. If you're wearing the, the, the maple leaf on, on a crest on, on a shirt or a suit or anything, you, you're you're part of Team Canada. Mm. That all started in 1972. The second thing it gave us was this entire mantra of Canadians never giving up, of fighting to the last minute. Something that got lost post Second World War and leading right up to the summit series as we became a different type of country, that came crashing back and has been championed by countless hundreds upon hundreds of men, women, boys and girls representing our country in all different aspects. That never give up attitude, winning those last three games on Moscow ice, uh, under the most incredible duress imaginable on and off the ice is what it single-handedly has made an identity of Canadians 50 years ago.
1: Liam, so oftentimes we hear about the Paul Henderson goal. Pretty much anybody I talk to over the age of 60 years old can tell me where they were when that goal went in, whether it was watching on TV in a school gymnasium or listening to the radio at work or wherever it may be. I'm curious. Beyond the Henderson goal, do you have an enduring memory from the series?
0: <clears throat> well, yeah, hundreds. I mean, I, I look at you're talking to a guy here who has gotten to know all of these men. Those that are still with us, we've lost ten. Uh, I know, I know them all intimately. We're we're the best of friends. I have emceed their events for most of the two thousands, numerous times, and. I I was 13 years old. That was a life-altering moment for me, that series. I'm a massive hockey guy. My entire class was. I was in grade eight at St. Leonard's in Manitic that Thursday afternoon in Pat Jennings' class. And when Henderson scored, it was a life-altering moment for me. And it is it is it has stayed that way through time. So I got lots of memories. My favorite player of all time is Yvonne Cornaway, the goal he scored in Toronto in game two. Pete Mahalic, his shorthanded goal in that same game, Bill Esposito's speech at the conclusion of the game in Vancouver on Friday night, September 8th, 1972, should be shown in every single Canadian school. Every September, it should be shown. You know what that speech did, Dave? That speech rallied this country. The players never saw it. The players didn't see it for months. Some of them not for years. There was no VCRs or VHSs or Betamaxes (laughs) in those days. There was no late night 24-hour sports channel that, yeah, let's just flip it on and see what happened tonight. There was none of that, right? So what that speech did, if you think about this, in 1972, 50 years ago, that speech rallied 3,000 Canadians, 3,000 men and women got on a plane and flew to Moscow in 1972 to support the team. And to a man, those players will tell you, those that are still with us, God bless them all, that that was critically important in, in their comeback. <clears throat> and uh, do I have an endearing moment? I mean, I, I, like literally every game, sadly, the ones we lost, of course, are seared in my mind. But yeah, I mean, Paul Paul's goal in game seven with 206 to play, it was a four on four and he beat every every guy on the ice, and he roofed it over Treczak. One of the nicest goals you'll see in hockey history. All they needed was a tie. The Soviets just needed one, one tie in those last three games. We, we win them all by one goal. The mm. same guy gets the winner in all three games. He gets the winner with 2.06 to play in Game 7 and 34 seconds to go in Game 8. Do I have a memory? <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, Listen, I I can quote you chapter verse from game one to game eight and everything in between. So, yeah, I got a memory.
1: I suspect when you've uh, written as many books as you have. Yes, it definitely implies there's more than just one enduring memory. Liam, we are so appreciative for your perspective and passion this morning. I know you're doing excellent work around the Ottawa area in terms of so much sports programming and across the country. Thank you for making a little bit of time for us today.
0: My pleasure, Dave. Thank you for having me on on such a significant anniversary.
1: That's Liam McGuire. A hockey historian, and a HLNs historian, and an author of four books on the game, Liam McGuire, one of the uh, best there is. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.
0: This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.